and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Did you tell me you built a time machine? What if it's a warrior? This is the stupid answer. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Sachs. Woohoo! Nothing there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chips. <laughs> oh, Monday, October 27th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18, soon to be 19 years. Young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous host, Andy Goodman, is again off for the evening. We wish her well. She is a journalist and young adult breast cancer fighter. We are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, very special conclusion to our coverage of National Breast Cancer Awareness Year, Planet Universe. Spotlight on the Young Survival Coalition, a great organization highlighted tonight. The great work being done over there with uh, Gene Rowe, the Associate Director of Survivorship Programs, Meta Sutliff, who's the Northeast Regional Field Manager and Survivor, Khadija Carter. Live here in studio, spotlight on Vanessa Lavin, founder of Survival Organs. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I'll be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag SD Radio. All right. How is everyone? Doing great. We've got a full house tonight. We do. In fact, that full house is potentially detrimental to our human resources. I'm sorry. We have all six employees in one place at the same time. So if there's like a carbon monoxide leak or something. <laughs> <laughs> I see. The end of stupid cancer as we, we know it. We need to hire a bunch more employees so that everyone's out like sick at least. Yeah, exactly. Know, right? Next time we need six iPads on a stick robot. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, we well, could all catch Ebola right now. Well, she's waving. What? No, maybe. Well, it is in New York. Yeah, welcome to New York, Ebola. Don't panic. Well, People are panicking. This is it, not, this it's not a panic. Pure Ebola. It is Fearball. Mm-hmm. Well said. That would be Sean Shapiro. Hello, Sean. Hey, guys. How are you? I am swell. Welcome back. And Allie Ward up from Baltimore waving from the couch. Allie is in full shift gear now as we are moving towards the uh, beginning of the marketing and promotion juggernaut that is CancerCon. And uh, Sean wanted to make a special announcement tonight because uh, she, he and Allie and I have been working on the, a launch, which I believe is coming up very soon. 
the uh, CancerCon VIP Club. Let's talk about that. That's correct. On Tuesday, November 4th, in just about a week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We are launching the VIP Club. It's an incredible opportunity to uh, ensure the success of the upcoming event that is CancerCon coming up April 24th to 26th in Denver. And uh, it's a great way to just reach out to your networks, uh, fundraise, um, and, and help make it possible. And at the same time, uh, get a lot of benefits, including a, a potential voucher to fly and stay in Denver for the weekend. Yes, nothing like it. It's been very successful. And I believe to date, between 2012, 2013, and 2014, it's brought in a little over $200,000, right? Something like that. Uh, yeah, I think I said a quarter of a million. I remember what? saying that one. That's a better number. Yeah. I'm going to go with that number. A quarter of a million. <laughs> <Marina> <laughs> was in the woods and she said that <laughs> once. <laughs> so visit CancerCon.org. We'll be mentioning it later in the show, but CancerCon.org is the place to be when we go to Denver. Sign up. Yep. Ooh. And also joining us in studio tonight is uh, Mallory Rivera, our fabulous birthday girl tonight. Happy oh, birthday, Mallory God. Rivera. Happy She's birthday. turning 13 for the second time. Yep. <laughs> she has her working papers, though. Yeah. <laughs> Very happy about that. And uh, Mr. Kenny Kane here on the air. You Good evening. Are, you have uh, enjoyed the benefits of a fabulous promotion. Yes. From whatever the hell you used to be. Yeah, you know, it was a more responsibility and a pay cut, right? <laughs> and now you are officially the chief operating officer of Stupid Cancer. Sounds very luxurious. <laughs> That's the human resource department. Thank That's you. all we got. There is a uh, a direct relationship between putting up with you and promotions. <laughs> yeah, is that an um, like an inverse proportion or some kind of like like they, they run on a parallel? On a parallel graph. It's a hyperbolic, yes. tangential. Never intersecting. Yeah. So, Kenny, have you ever gotten a chance to hand out all of your business cards before reprinting with a no. new title? Yeah, there's actually a garbage heap somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, full of my business cards. What was cards. your first title? Uh, chief Operations Associate. That's pretty close. I was the chief of the associates. <laughs> <laughs> and it was underscored by uh, Chief Crackberry Officer. That's right. Back when we had nicknames. Yeah, I was the uh, I was the guy with the BlackBerry. You had the Black. That's right. I can't believe I knew you when you had a BlackBerry. I know. Pre-Apple. How yeah. far you? I didn't even have a beard. <laughs> That's right. You were very little. I was. Yeah. I was thirteen for the second time. I know. You young. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I am off to uh, D.C. tomorrow. I have a five a.m. board time. At Newark Airport. How excited! Out of Newark, they wanted me to fly because I couldn't drive and mm. I had to be there by 9 a.m. Well, if you're lucky, they'll quarantine you. Yeah. Out of Newark. Yeah, I can't. Mm, I can't imagine. believe you agreed to fly out of things Newark. I do for people. Just crazy. That's a nice person. Yeah. Mm. Well, I want to wrap the banter here around a very sensitive issue because this is the last week of life of Brittany Maynard. Mm-hmm. She, if you haven't uh, been living in a cave is a young adult with uh, glioblastoma multiformity stage four, which is a not a death sentence, but it's pretty much it'll just wreck you for life if you survive it. And she just got married, correct? And then uh, um, possibly it's, I know she is married. I think it's relatively oh, okay. recently. Yeah. Um, so she moved to um, she married a year ago. Thanks, mm-hmm. Mel. And. Uh, Factcheck.org here in the house. Mm-hmm. And she moved to Oregon for their Compassionate Death 
law? Yeah, so Oregon is one of four or five states um, that allows you to, some people call it assisted suicide, we prefer to say compassionate death, some people might call it euthanasia, whatever it is, um, but choosing to end your own life. Um, and so that is legal there, and she and a large portion of her family have moved out there to live out her final days. Now, she, no kids, right? Just married? No, she wanted to have children um, and was unable to, well, not unable to, but was diagnosed. Um, and, yeah, so she has chosen November 1st as the day so that she could stay around for her husband's birthday, which is at the end of October. So, yeah, so it's been a very interesting issue to discuss in very the cancer community. Um, I think a lot of the people that I've talked to, at least affiliated with super cancer, certainly understand um, the kind of the idea of having the right to make this decision, right. even if they might not necessarily agree, agree with it. Um, but being able to choose that, that seems to be the general uh, consensus. But, of course, there are others who think that you shouldn't be able to do that at all. I mean, we posted on our wall, it was one of our most I, – I, Successful isn't the right word for that, but I guess most uh, responded to. It had a lot, yeah, it had a, a pretty big reach. Very, very large reach. And, I mean, we can dismiss the idiots that were saying stupid things like, go, oh, go, you know, give yourself a coffee animal. You'll be fine. You know, mm. all the, the, the yeah, cannabis oil people. You can cure it. Yeah. But it is very polarizing because I personally wouldn't make that choice. I'd rather disintegrate into a pool of jello. Mm-hmm. You know, because at least I'm costing, you know, taxpayers money. <laughs> or your but, family in some cases. I mean, I to, to an extent where, like, if I had to go on, like, a DNR, that would be what I, I would, like, move, me, move my corpse, my pre-corpse to Oregon and kill me there. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Like, mm-hmm. once it gets to, like, there's no point whatsoever anymore, then I'm okay with it. There's no point in, like, lingering in a coma, you know, on, like, um, what's that called? Life support. Mm-hmm. There's no point in that. That is completely fruitless for me. Right. Right. And Brittany's decision had to do with the kind of implications of treatment for her and the effect that it was likely going to have on her quality of life. And she chose instead to forego treatment and, you know, maintain a better quality of life for the time that she had remaining. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, it's it's incredible. It made the news. It's all over the country. Yeah. She was in People magazine. It's it's like it's kind of like pop culture as well as like proper news. So it's it's interesting to kind of see the the ways it's being portrayed. Anyway. Definitely a very sensitive issue. Again, her name is Brittany Maynard, M A Y N A R D. Uh you can just Google her name and you'll hear what we're talking about here on the show tonight. Mm-hmm. In any case, let's uh head on to a our survivor spotlight here because I'm really stoked to have this young lady on our show tonight. Cue her up here. Vanessa Lavin is a non-Hodgkin's former survivor who turned around and found the Survival Organs, a plush organ company. We'll explain what that is. She creates cute and cuddly stuffed body parts from her home in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Survival Organs are sewn by a survivor for your survivor. Please welcome to the show the one and only Vanessa Lavin. Vanessa. Hi, everybody. Thank you for that very nice uh, intro. Calling in from uh, Minneapolis, I see. Yes, that's where I live, but I actually am from Union City, New Jersey, right across the river from New York City. Are you calling in from Jersey now, or are you calling in from Minneapolis now? No, I'm coming, calling in from Minneapolis, but I grew up in Jersey. Uh, uh, Jersey wasn't horrible enough for you, and moved to Minneapolis? 
are you trying to say about the uh, land? You know, I don't know. It, it's pretty cool here, actually. No, it is cool. I was actually just in Minneapolis with Allie Ward uh, sitting here in, in our studio, RVP programs, because it was one of the cities in contention to host CancerCon. And uh, awesome. we had a very pleasant time there. We got a huge tour of the city. And uh, regrettably, it was during one of your phenomenal 85-inch-in-a-day snowstorms. Um, so <laughs> yeah. your city in, in black and white, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Mostly white. Mostly white. Yeah, well, you know, it, it does snow a lot here. Uh, but apparently, this was uh, the worst winter in like 30 years, is what my neighbors told me. So, but I like it here. I really don't miss Jersey. So, no, no one misses Jersey. I'm just saying. In any case, let, let's uh, go back to, uh, you know, 2000, and you were diagnosed 20, 25 years old in 2010 with non Hodgkin's. What was your life like before? What were the symptoms you experienced? And, and how did this all come to pass? Well, uh, I had gotten married, and I, I went out to Spokane, Washington, to visit my in-laws, uh, and I caught a cold on the plane, which really didn't surprise me. Um, when I came back, uh, my cold never went away, and it got worse and worse. And I was doing martial arts, and I went from being, you know, the favorite in the class to barely being able to get through, you know, our warm-up sessions because uh, I just couldn't breathe. I kept complaining of heaviness in my chest, and I had this really bad barking cough. And I started sweating at night, and I started getting nosebleeds, and everything kind of seemed, ex- you know, there was a good explanation for everything. Nosebleed from, you know, the AC, sweating at night. Maybe I was just wearing too many clothes because it was the summer. Uh the cough, though, that my doctor thought was just asthma um, and being exposed to my dad's secondhand smoke, it never got better, even with nebulizer treatments. So I got a second opinion, and I was told flat out they had no idea what was wrong with me. Um, but uh, they did emergency surgery because they saw my heart was enlarged on an, um, on an X-ray, and I went to the ER. They popped me open, you know, in surgery, and... When I woke up, I said to my husband, so is it cancer? We kind of thought about the things that it could be. And he said, well, yeah. And I remember saying, oh, I'll be all right. And then I passed out again from the anesthesia. And I just, you know, I ended up spending uh, two weeks in the hospital. Uh, We went from thinking I had uh, no chance to live to, uh, you know, 50-50 with primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma. And I did uh, six rounds of hyper-CVAD, which is like R-CHOP with extra stuff. And I was declared in remission halfway through. And in January 2011, I finished chemotherapy. And I've been okay ever since. Well, we like uh, happy ending stories. And it's certainly amazing that you uh, went through this and came out uh, you know, on the other end, as uh, amazing as you are, I, I find what's most interesting in in a lot of the people that come on the show is that, and this show, the other half of the show is on breast cancer. Um, the the general public tends to think that cancer is one disease, like polio, and breast cancer has like 30 million different subsets of itself. But like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, all these crazy different subsets. Can you explain what is mediastinal large diffuse B cell? How does that factor into 
anything? Well, so that was actually the big question when they opened me up. Uh, mediastinal means that it was in my chest from kind of my sternum. You have um, your lymph nodes surrounding your heart and in your sternum. Uh, and the question was, was my cancer, was my tumor growing from my heart muscles out or from kind of the, if you are looking from behind, uh, kind of from my sternum towards my heart. If it was growing from my heart out, they were going to put me into palliative care because uh, there was absolutely no chance of recovery from that. But since it was kind of starting in my sternum, I was going to be more okay, more likely to be okay. And uh, the large diffuse B cell part means that it was the I really don't know what the large part means, quite frankly, but the B cells are one type of the cells in your, that make up your immune system. We hear about AIDS patients um, talking about their T cell counts. It's the other uh, cells that are, make up your body defenses. But, you know, mine just affected the B cells, and basically it was all because of that cold I caught on the plane for whatever reason, and that's what we're, you know, scientists trying to figure out why, uh, my immune system went into overdrive and those cancer, those uh, cells that were mutating were mutating in, uh, that were dividing were mutated incorrectly. And that's what caused the cancer. So basically I had cancer of the immune system and it's, it's a, it's in your blood. So even though I had a large, a grapefruit sized tumor in my chest, they said, even if they removed it, I mean, I would still have cancer. It's a lot, it's similar to leukemia in the sense of whenever, wherever you have it, it's still everywhere else in your body, not just localized in one spot. Right, and they don't use the word metastatic with blood cancer, do they? I don't think so. Uh, I know it, uh, we, I did have a bone marrow biopsy done just to make sure it wasn't in my marrow itself, and that came out clear. Uh, and my, my oncologist did say, you know, that was a good... That was a good sign, uh, but I don't think so. That's not a, a term I've, I've seen come up. Well, you were treated at Hackensack University Medical Center right across the river in Hackensack, New Jersey. Um, I yeah. have a, a lot of friends that work there. We do a lot of good stuff with them with their partner uh, clinic called the John Thur Cancer Center, and they have a lot of pediatric and adolescent young adult programs there. Do you experience a lot of that age-appropriate relevancies during your care? You know, quite frankly, I didn't, but that was because I was in the middle of their transitioning from where they were in the hospital itself to their standalone clinic that they now have. So um, my frustration was that every other program was barred from me because I either didn't have breast cancer or I was just too young and I was just completely out of place among these 80-year-olds. Uh, that were were discussing their their retirement options and things like that, and I was just thinking retirement. You know, I I, I just lost my job. You know, a few months ago. I I need a, a career before I can start thinking about retirement. Uh, but from what I've heard, and I, I've since moved away. Uh, you know, the new center is absolutely beautiful. No, and it truly is, and they have made uh, conscious efforts to focus on the AYA population. So. I'm sorry you missed it, but in the end, the next Jew that's treated there is, is having a ball. Um, well, rhetorically speaking, of course, you know, being in an age-appropriate uh, care. Um, were you, I, I just want to round out the, the young adult issues that we try to make um, make a big deal out here. Were you 
uh, you mentioned you lost your job. Was that because you could no longer do your job, or there was like a human resources snafu that you uh, had to face? Well, actually, I lost my job because of the economic downturn. Uh, I was in human resources, and I was one of the folks that, you know, had to get cut. And so, I I mean, so so throughout me having all these cancer symptoms, I was trying to go on job interviews and just coughing my way through them. And people, I think, just kind of looked at me and said, there's something really weird with this girl. And I didn't uh, didn't get any callbacks. And then during treatment, you know, I I wasn't going to, go on any job interviews with no immune system and no hair. I was like, there's just no way. And that, that's part of why I started Survival Organs was I took the bull by the horns and figured, you know, no one's going to hire me with a gap on my resume. I'm just going to make my own business doing what I like, which is you know, sewing and being crafty. And it's worked in my favor so far. And that's what strikes me most about your, your experience here. I like to talk when I'm on stage about you have to find – an anchor in the sea of chaos when you're going through kind of these things without a net and uh, you knit. And I wouldn't predict as an old guy at 40 that young women knit, but apparently that's a thing that my grandma did and young people are doing now. And I think it's really cool. So have you always knitted? And that was something that you were able to apply to get through this and manage. Yes, actually Uh, I come from a very crafty, uh, you know, family so I was always told you you know idle hands are the devil's playground and if you're watching tv you better be doing something more productive than just sitting there you know drooling in front of the cartoons um so it was it was my one anchor point I couldn't do martial arts anymore uh because I just was so sick but I could still knit it's what got me through my my father's death the the year before so I just kept knitting and and since my chemo was also in the hospital I didn't get, you know, there wasn't a basket out for chemo caps, so I just made my own. And I figured I could just make my own and make them look nicer and and it would keep me entertained. And I started passing them around to some of the friends I made on the floor and to the nurses as well. And it was just, I found that it just kept me grounded. It kept me calm. And it kept me, you know, feeling like I was doing something. At the very least, I could say, you know what, I did this, I made this shawl, I made this hat, I made this toy, I made these socks. I I couldn't point to, chemo didn't feel concrete, but knitting did, you know, doing things, crafty things did. It it made me feel like I I was doing something with my time. And it's almost like you're creating a, a, like a voodoo doll of sorts, right? You're creating organs representing the body and the pieces of your body that can get sick. And you have like lymph nodes, and you have—I think you have a, a, a kidney, or what? What are the organs you do have on, as part of your lineup? Well, right now I have—I um, have lymph nodes, I have white blood cells, I have thyroids, uh, um, I have some pancreases, gallbladders, livers, uteruses, testicles from November. I—the uh, the testicles do come with mustaches. Uh, I also have breasts now for. Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so I'm really trying to cover all of the body. And uh, I made one as a joke and just to throw it at my oncologist when he was, you know, bugging me. Uh, and it just, it became, yeah, like a voodoo doll. And then I had um, I had my friend sign him because I make my organs out of cotton. And I just realized, you know, this is a really great get well soon gift. You could just take a Sharpie, have everyone sign it, 
and give you a new whatever the heck it is that you're missing. And in that, you know, it was just a funny way of, of dealing with my feelings. And I, I'm, I'm adding more every day, too. Um, and I, I do take requests. I'm working on some colons as well. Those came up at OMG East. People want colons. If you could make me a Matthew Zachary voodoo doll, I would pay handsomely for it. <laughs> and I'd take it down into sure. Orleans and get it blessed by some crazy witch doctor. Maybe survival CEOs. Yes. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, and I, I, I've got to restock up on brains. Um, but those that I do have, I just need to actually sit down and make them. Well, my staff will tell you I have about seven or eight plushy brains, and I think I have, like, blue brain pencil erasers on my desk, and they're my go-to when I remember I have them. That, that is awesome. I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've suggested them as passive-aggressive gifts, you know. <laughs> Very nice. Just leave them on someone's desk. What's been the response? I mean, clearly, I love the young adult cancer world. It's so irreverent and disruptive, and it just thinks very differently than we're used to having in this country. And this is just a great idea. What has been the response, and how are you marketing these and getting these out there? The response among the young adult cancer community has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I was at OMG East, and I really did not expect to be flooded like I was. I mean, I, I was sold out uh, by the end of the day. I didn't. I had hardly anything left. Um, so it's been really great. It's been really great. Uh, I'm, I'm mostly selling through Etsy of getting people saying, oh, my gosh, you know, my sister loved it, my mom, you know, whoever it was, I get a lot of thank you so much. It made their day. I finally saw, you know, a him or her laugh for the first time in a while. Uh, I've gotten some older folks, they just don't quite get it. Um, but, you know, I just want to explain, there's nothing funny about cancer, and that's the problem. That's what makes people upset and depressed and angry, and I'm trying to... to have that that way to just laugh about the stupidity and the absurdity of the situation that we find ourselves in when we're so sick. And that's when people start to get it. Uh, but, yeah, I'm on Etsy. I'll be at CancerCon as well. So I'm on the Internet. I'm on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram, and, and hopefully coming soon to a, a cancer convention near you. Well, you do. you are very active on Twitter, and uh, you have a quite quite a nice movement and following um, on the on on social media. Have you been able to get other people to pick up needles and yarn and, and start knitting? You know, I used to teach uh, knitting and crochet classes uh, back in Jersey, so I have taught people, and I've taught a few of my friends. You know, my husband uh, he knows how to knit, and that's mostly just so you know he could say, "Well, it's it's not so hard. Look, I can do it." Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm, I am actually pretty plugged into the knitting scene here and it's a pretty big, there are several million knitters actually in the United States. So I, I, I hope I've been able to show other people that it's not that hard. Um, I've also taught myself how to draw, which a lot of my friends on Facebook think is pretty cool too. And I went from having zero skills to just now doing things a little bit better just by practicing every day. It's really wonderful. One more quick question. How is your health now, and what do your follow-up visits look like? What's your, your lifestyle practice? Well, actually, uh, last week was my second-to-last 
CT scan, and that came back clear. So my doctor thinks that, you know, next year's CT scan will hopefully be my last. Uh, my immune system continues to be compromised, which is another reason why I decided to go into business for myself. Uh, I catch every single cold that goes around. Um, but other than that, you know, my health is pretty good. I, I've gotten back into working art, uh, working out. I haven't found a martial arts gym that I like just yet, but I've gotten into weightlifting with my husband, and I live right by a waterfall, and, you know, I go hiking a lot. Um, and Minneapolis is a really good walkable and bikeable. I learned how to ride a bike this, this year, this summer, for the first time. So it, it's a really bikeable city, which I like. So I've been actually really active, which is also part of the reason why we left Jersey. <laughs> you know, I live near a waterfall, so sewer grate that dumps into house and street. But I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Vanessa Lavin is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. Uh, what is your blog? It's called mixedmartialartsandcrafts.com, and I'm on Etsy at uh, survivalorgans.etsy.com. Survivalorgans.etsy.com. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Vanessa Lavin. Thank you. Now, before the news, we have a special guest here live in studio tonight. We have joining us here is Ginger Smith. She's a drop-in. Uh, come to visit us tonight. Would you say hello? Hello, everybody. And what brought you to our fine studio this evening? Uh, well, I um, have worked with patients for a long time, and I am in the midst of launching a marketplace, and I just heard about a fantastic product that I'm going to have in the marketplace, which is really fun to hear about. I didn't know. So coming up in this next year, we are going to be launching a marketplace with products with, uh, for folks with cancer. So I'm blessed to be here tonight, excited to learn more about what you guys do, and and follow your journey. Are they plushy organs? Yeah. That market is apparently taken. <laughs> well, no, but we could sell the organs on the marketplace. I'm That's building awesome. the marketplace on which oh, we can sell them. The Amazon for cancer. Yes. Very nice. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you were here to join us tonight. Thank Enjoy you. the hilarities, and please don't make fun of us <laughs> in post-production. Thank you very much. Okay, Kenny, now it's time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, everybody, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Uh, just three this week, Matt, Kansas City, Houston, and Philly. And you can host your own Stupid Cancer Meetup by visiting stupidcancer.org slash meetup. That's right, Matt. That's right, Kenny. Cancer is lonely. We've got the cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer. Our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one -one peer support for anyone affected by any cancer, including caregivers. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join the beta testing community and immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible donation of $500. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all of the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com. Yes, that's cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser for yourself or someone else. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Visit cancermademebroke.com today to learn more and start your personal fundraiser now. 
It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and warm with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got a skateboard. We've got Flip the Bird. We've got hoodies. We've got a ton of stuff, Matt. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right. Game time. Hi. Jean Rowe is YFC's Associate Director of Survivorship Programs and Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Oncology Certified Social Worker and a Certified Journal Therapist. She's been YFC with, she's been with YFC for three and a half years and is based out of Atlanta. Joining her, joining her, oh my God. <laughs> joining her is uh, Kadisha Carter, a two-time breast cancer survivor, originally diagnosed in 2003 when she was 28. Since then, she's been using her voice to give hope to anyone facing adversity. And returning champ, Meta Sutliff, Meta is a two-time young adult breast cancer survivor, diagnosed at 27 and 36. At the time of her second diagnosis, her four children ranged in age from three months to 11. YFC was a lifesaver for her, and now she is their Northeast Regional Field Manager. Please welcome to the show, Meta Sutliff, Kadisha Carter, and Jean Rowe, ladies. Thank you. Hi. Hey. It's always interesting to say all the names at once. <laughs> so this is a, a four-peat. Um, we've been on the air for seven seasons, and for the past four, we have YSC featured as an organization in October. It is the only organization we feature in October that is dedicated to young adult breast cancer. The rest just make fun of October. So, uh, woohoo! <laughs> Which we can do here tonight it doesn't preclude us making fun of Pink Sober, but you guys do it really, really well, um, and I'm always really proud. And and we should uh, light a little candle here because it's the first show that Jen Mercer and Stacey Lewis have not been on in four no. years. So guilt them under separate, uh, okay. you know, they're too cool. For they're just, we, we've, no pressure out- or anything. They outcooled out- <laughs> us. They've out everything does. But uh, let's get started here with Gene because. Um, I've known you for a long time, and as the Associate Director of Survivorship Programs, you are probably the most in touch with the inner sanctum of how YSE has really revitalized its outreach and its communications to younger women, and how the departure from the C4YW model has yielded a whole new uh, sort of um, ecosystem of opportunities for regional chapters and young women to get involved. So let's let's, uh, trace the core back to the wall. It's 1990. Seven, right, and that's the year that this got started. I believe so. We're in our sixteenth year, yeah. So, so um, what obvious reasons it got started, but talk us through the origin. Sorry. Okay, so <clears throat> YSC started as a New York organization and still is based there. Um, it started with three young women who found each other and realized not much was on deck for them as survivors in terms of awareness or information or research, and so they founded YSC, and it was a very grassroots movement. They recruited about 11 other people who are, some of them are still very involved with YSC. In fact, Lisa Frank, who uh, started Tour de Pink, was in Atlanta this weekend for the Tour de Pink Atlanta, so it says something about people being really dedicated to the mission of the organization, which is to uh, help young women under the age of 40 at any stage and at any point on their breast cancer journeys. 
Um, the affiliates kind of grew out of people approaching the organization saying, hey, I want to be able to reach people here. And that worked for a, a pretty long while. But in 2011, Jim Storff and I actually started on the same day, and things started changing practically the second she touched down to really grow us from an affiliate structure to a regional structure with the goal in mind that the affiliate structure, we didn't have the infrastructure within our organization to grow that way. We couldn't offer the the staff support in the way that it needed to be. So the way it works now, networking programs who were part of the affiliates are now face-to-face programs. This is an example that are all peer-led. So young women all over the country, if they want to, they can approach Meta, for example, in the Northeast and say, hey, I want to start a face-to-face group, and we get them going. There's no um, fundraising component, which there was under the affiliate affiliate structure. And within a year, we grew from under 30 groups under the affiliate structure to nearly 100 under the face-to-face structure. So that's a good example of how that change practically brought immediately good results to reaching more young women. Well, that's an excellent segue to Meta, who is mm-hmm. the North Regional Field Manager, and we'd love to learn more about this transition from the affiliate model to the regional model. Uh, we found it works really well here at Super Cancer as well, because then you're giving people this organic opportunity to take an active role. Talk us through that that structure and how that works. Absolutely, Matthew. Thank you. Um, so I have a kind of a unique perspective on on the success. Um, over the last couple of years, I actually came up through the ranks with YSC. Um, I found YSC after my diagnosis nine, almost 10 years ago, and I was a volunteer for many years. And I live near Columbus, Ohio. And we had a great affiliate here with um, some amazing young women, you know, some of my best friends, who worked long hours, as you understand, volunteering and growing the affiliate. Um, but so we had this great affiliate in Columbus, and we had nothing in we didn't have an affiliate in Cleveland or Cincinnati. So it was really an indication, I think, when Jen Merstorf and, and when this regional structure um, you know was adopted by YSC, that you know we really want to fulfill our mission to reach every young woman who's facing breast cancer. So I was given the amazing opportunity of joining the staff two years ago um, after the reorganization as the Northeast Regional Field Manager. So in this role, you know, not only did I want to nurture those existing groups that we had coming out of the affiliate, but also really put the emphasis on outreach because there are so many young women that live, you know, don't live near one of our affiliates that needed um, support and assistance. So that's what I did. I hit the ground running um, in the Northeast. Um, it's a, um, we have four regional field managers. I'm just, I'm one of them, um, four regions, and um, my region is 15 states. Of course, New York is um, in my region, um, and because I live in Ohio, thankfully Ohio was pulled into the Northeast, and um, I really started connecting with young women that wanted, wanted to form their own circle of support. 
Um, and and really were relieved that they didn't have any fundraising requirements or uh, didn't need, you know, committees or anything. They could do this in a very, as Jean said, grassroots, organic manner where they were connecting, supporting, and sharing resources with other young women near them. And so there's many young women that, that want to take the lead on this. There's others that don't. Um, I work with you know, all of the young survivors, anybody newly diagnosed, um, and those that kind of do want to take the lead can start their own group. And it's very, very simple. So as Jean said, we started uh, with just under 30 um, two years ago throughout the nation, and we are close to 100 now of these um, local networking groups, these face-to-face networks. So it's a privilege. It's a privilege to to do this. I have to pinch myself that I can uh, be in this role and uh, reach as many young women as possible. Maida, just to follow up on that, um, I actually do some of the management for our meetups here, and yeah. the regional model worked really well for us uh, as well, and we've seen a lot of expansion even in just the past little over a year, I guess close to a year and a half now that we've had the regional model in. Um, and I actually had a question for you um, about mm-hmm. rural survivors mm-hmm. and what is, what's YSC's strategy for reaching survivors in rural areas that have a hard time getting to those urban centers where face-to-face meetings can mostly happen? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, So one thing that YSC has always stressed and and in the last few years has really come full circle is that support comes in many forms. So, of course, Mm -hmm. we've highlighted our face-to-face networks because um, as a young survivor myself, um, you want to meet someone else that gets it. So, and you know, face-to-face interaction is so valuable. But it, but support can come in many forms, and it isn't. Um, not only is it not geographically convenient, it may be personally or professionally inconvenient for a young adult that's been diagnosed with cancer to meet face-to-face. So, I love that YC, you know, rapidly responded to this, and you know, we look at um, we looked at many different ways of offering support. And so you can meet face-to-face um, by joining a local network. You can meet online. Um, YSC has online messaging message boards. Um, we call them our um, community boards. They're online bulletin boards, chat rooms, whatever you want to call them. It takes a minute to register a young survivor. They're logged on, and they can connect 24-7 from their computer at home with other young survivors around the country on a variety of forums. Um, under 30, diagnosed under 30, fertility issues, um, diversity issues, uh, you know, regional issues, anything. So online, in person, and then, of course, um, one-to-one where, we, uh, Jean, I'm sure we'll touch on this, we have a survivor link program where you can um, sign up and be matched with a peer who's gone through a similar circumstance for ongoing telephone support one-to-one. Um, and then, of course, we can mail resources, materials, resources. So there's a number of these um, forms of support um, so that if you do live in a rural area or even if you're in an urban area but you, can't, you have young children and can't get to a meetup, um, there's support available for you. And all of these are described on our website. So then let's get to Khadija Carter here live in the studio. And by the way, we love when people come live in the studio. It's nice to see faces and eyeballs and, and reactions. <laughs> well, it's good to be here for many reasons, yes. clearly, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you are a beneficiary of the YSC, someone who discovered them and have almost like 
self-profited emotionally, physically, uh, psychologically from all that they offer. You're you're uh, 11 years out, diagnosed when uh, you were 28 in 2003. Your daughter was six. Yes. Another issue in the young adult world is, you know, we're not 80. We're have kids, you know, in fertile years. Uh, Tell us your story. Well, I was 28 years old, and I felt a lump in my breast. I brought it to the attention of my gynecologist, and initially I was told that it was probably nothing because I was only 28 years old. It's always nothing. Oh, it's always nothing, yeah. Right. So <laughs> my follow-up exam to have a breast sonogram was scheduled a month later. They noticed something suspicious. My biopsy was scheduled for six weeks after that, and eventually I was told I had breast cancer. So from the time I felt the lump in my breast, it took almost five months before I was diagnosed. And that happens to a lot of women. So you probably wouldn't would have been stage one if taken seriously. The first Possibly, time. I was stage right. three by at that time. Right. So. Well, that's that's a major issue in in yeah. all of healthcare. I mean, we we can always point fingers in different places, but primary care just isn't aware. Right. Uh, OBGYNs just aren't necessarily aware, and it's almost like the cynic in me says, "What well, could a self exam? No one takes you seriously in medicine." Right, and and it's, it just made my doctor uncomfortable. They didn't think that I would be right. I would have breast cancer. So, so how did you talk to your daughter about this, Meta? You had children too, and I wanted you to chime uh-huh. in after Kadisha. Well, I kept the language really simple for her because I didn't want her to go to school and say, "My mommy has breast cancer." So I just said, "Mom, I'm having some issues with my breast. I'm going to have surgery." Medicine, well, she was sick. She, she can understand sick. this. Right, yeah. right. So I did. I remember telling her that the medicine that I would have to take would make me lose my hair. And I looked at her, and she had a little tear rolling down her yeah. down her face. And um, and I remember when I my hair started falling up from the chemotherapy, and I had it shaved off. And when she saw me, she said, "Mom, you look beautiful bald, but you have to wear a wig to my school." I said, "Okay." on my head anytime I went to her school. But from that time, I was affiliated with YAC. I actually worked with them, and I would travel to different conferences all over the country and speak at different events, and I would bring my daughter with me. How did you find them in the first place? Well, the Internet was yeah. like, not the Internet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did find them on the Internet, believe it or not, and I was really so happy to connect with an organization that had young women because when I was diagnosed, so many people referred me to other women who were breast cancer survivors too, but they were in their fifties and it was nice talking to them, but we couldn't relate too much. And anytime I went to a doctor's appointment, people thought I was a home health aide or someone's daughter. I'm like, no, I'm one of you, grandma. You know, (laughs) I remember being in, uh, in treatment. I was diagnosed at 21 and and I was in pediatrics. So I remember being thought of as a parent waiting for their kid to finish treatment rather than the kid that was getting treatment himself who was not a kid. So I can relate completely to that experience. Meta, you had four kids. Not that it's a contest. I have two of us. God bless you. Have four. <laughs> um, that was really interesting to, to talk us through that parental process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. Khadija said it really well. You know, you do. I'm not going to lie. It, it wasn't easy with young children. Um, our youngest was three months when um, I had my second diagnosis. So it was shortly after pregnancy and I was breastfeeding. And it was really literally stepping into your worst nightmare. It's really hard. And, you know, when children, um, you know, we want to protect them. You know, we want you know, we want them to be happy and you want, you want to keep things normal. <laughs> you know, cancer isn't 
normal. <laughs> and uh, so it was, uh, my oldest was 11, and um, we kept it very simple, as Khadija said, you know, really simple. Mommy has, you know, had something, um, you know, wrong, had something in her breast that had to be, you know, removed, and she's going to, you know, be tired, and, you know, she's going to, might have to have, you know, her hair might fall out and these things, and, you know, you see that kind of look in their eyes, but they really just want to hear that you're going to be okay. And at the time, you know, that's what you want to. So it's easy to say that, you know, mommy's going to be okay. So uh, it's tough, tough, tough with kids. Um, thankful to have a supportive, you know, partner. My husband was there with me, was my rock, and, and that's helpful. Not easy to do that, you know, uh, regardless. But, um, yeah, so it's 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 really hard. You You want to put them first. And when you're diagnosed with cancer, you've got to put yourself first for a while. Yeah, we found that parenting with cancer is clearly, I mean, it, it's not a breast cancer specific. It's, you know, it, no, it's all young. Not cancers. at all. It, it Absolutely. Is one, of, one of the most necessary discussions in all of healthcare. Yes. That doesn't, and, Absolutely. And, and the running joke is it's hard enough when you're well <laughs> to be a parent, especially when they're yep. running around with diseases exactly. like in my, Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, let me go back to throw back to Jean for a second. Jean, um, can we talk about these other besides the the face to faces, which are clearly, you know, they're like direct to consumer support groups. It's like a make your own Sunday version of how to help yourself and other people, which I love. And I, I won't I won't say that we've stolen your idea, but we we we, we do a, ver- <laughs> a version of it ourselves, and it's really nice that we overlap communities very yes. productively, yeah. very efficiently. Uh, I want to talk about the YSC Summit that's coming up. This is your inaugural solo conference, March uh-huh. 6th through 8th, uh, 2015, in Houston, or as we say in New York, in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an exciting time that's going to be there. You know, our um, our programs team, which I'm a member of, Megan McCann, who is the Associate Director of Programs, and May Zing, who is an event associate, are the primary organizers and whiz bangs behind the entire event, which we all pitch in and help, but they are the two main people who are putting it all together. And we're excited about this um, solo act. We, you know, it, it's it's going to be one of these things that we are getting to decide how we want to do things, listening to the feedback from our constituents from past uh, offerings that we've had, to make sure that we're offering things that matter most to them. One of the subjects that continues, as with me being an oncology social worker, I've been on both the provider side and now with YSC, the, one of the biggest conversations that continues to happen and continues to need to happen is about intimacy during and after cancer, and that's going to be one of the big focuses of the conference, as is um, talking how to talk with your healthcare providers, and you know, I think right without judgment or criticism, the white coat still holds a lot of um, <clears throat> power in terms of what people will actually say to their doctor in the appointment, and then what they still don't understand or need to know after they've left an appointment. Or really about fertility preservation, I'm hearing still that people don't find out in a timely fashion about how to go through fertility preservation prior to treatment happening, and that shouldn't happen. So 
these are some of the topics that we're going to make sure that we're offering experts about. Uh, one of the things that I'm I'm pretty excited about is that we're offering a pre-conference um, continuing education program for mental health workers who work with cancer survivors and any nursing professional to do about fertility preservation. And uh, we have a, a local um, doctor in Houston who is with MD Anderson and helped start their whole fertility clinic related to oncology as the speaker, and she's also going to be speaking at the summit. So while some things may feel a little bit um, the same, it's going to be very different. They're going to, the talks are going to be fashioned, I think, more in brief conversational presentations, uh, probably to give just a lot more opportunity for the participants who are there to ask questions and interact with the with the presenters. So we're really excited about it. I, I mentioned this on the show in the past, and I am so fascinated by the new science and reproductive rights that are out there now that we're at a point where, and this has been around for a while, but now they're reaching a point, and I think we all know Lakshmi Kondrapali. Um Did I say that right, Maureen? Kondrapali. I'm very close. Very close, very yeah. close. Who is the... I don't know, one of the one of the nation's leading oncofertility reproductive endocrinologists and PhDs out there. Real brainiac. She's a descendant of the Teresa Woodruff School of, of I don't give a shit that you can't say no, but we're gonna make this happen anyway. And she was telling me about um how they can actually scrape ovarian tissue and harvest it later on to collect follicles. So you can actually have an oocyte, an ovarectomy, uh at any time before your treatment starts, where you don't have to go on the hormones, they just take it out, they freeze it, and they deal with it later. And the technology is, is moving in that place. Now, the issue, of course, is states' rights and insurance and okay. how that gets filled and who's in charge of it. And, and, um, but it's still progress, yeah. and I'm right. unbelievably fascinated by that. Great. Um, that sounds so hopeful. I want to talk about Tour de Pink because I know that drives everyone crazy in October because everyone's like cycling in, in Merstorf. Poor Jen Merstorf. What is Tour de Pink? Are you um, asking Jean? Or are you asking Jean, Mayda? go ahead, Jean. Yeah, go ahead, Jean. Um, Tour de Pink is a, is a bike ride that happens in three different locations in the country. Uh, it started in New York. Lisa Frank was the founder, and it's a three-day ride that I believe starts in Philly and ends mm-hmm. in New York. And then uh, YSC decided this was before my time. Tour de Pink Atlanta happens. It's a one-day ride, and that's where my biggest um, experience comes from. We just had it in, on Saturday, and it's an all-day event, so. While the riders are out there, there's a lot going on for survivors. It's um, like a little bit of a festival. There are lots of vendors and good food and live music and lots of cheering going on. Uh, It's very moving to see survivors take part either in a 5K or um, ride their different tiered distances. Mm -hmm. So um, the last rider on Saturday was a survivor, and she apparently had struggled a little bit, right? I don't know what her distance was. She went on one of the longer rides, and she was sobbing when she came across the uh, finish line. And she had two people who intentionally signed up 
to do nothing but ride beside her while she was out. This was very moving, and she was okay. It was just an emotional day to watch someone who's gone through a life-threatening illness to regain their strength and train for something that sounds, you know, really good going into it and then is very physically challenging and just having all these people, some you know and some you don't, really cheering you on when you finish. It's a very powerful and moving day for everyone. Um, And then the West Coast has a three-day ride as well, and they were um, almost back-to-back this year. So um, Jen, I know, was at both East and West, and then, um, like I said, TDP in Atlanta is a little bit different. So we had a good bit of staff with us, but not her. So it'd be fun to see mm-hmm. her there. Tadisha, you uh, you write for Ebony, and as a journalist, what do you write about? I actually recently wrote a, um, a series on breast cancer pertaining to black women. I'm focusing mostly on health care, health and wellness, ovarian cancer, breast cancer. I'm going to do something on lupus and just different issues that impact the African-American community. Well, that's one of the things YSC does really, really well, disparate groups for a conversation. I remember having back in the day with Michelle Persdisney and then Marsha uh, and then mm-hmm. Jen. Is, you guys do an exceptional job reaching disparate groups out there. And, um, you know, I commend you on doing that. It's very, very hard to do. It's a very mm-hmm. difficult challenge to reach this community, let alone reach them but have impact right. with them. So what are the issues that you discuss when you write about black women with breast cancer? Well, we have less incidence but higher mortality rates for various reasons, less access to care, um, sometimes biologically of triple negative, more black women are affected by that. Right. So, And then we have taboos. Sometimes we don't talk about this in our communities. So it's just about dispelling some of the myths about participating in clinical trials because we need more African-American participants so we can test these drugs on them to make sure that they work. Right. We did a show, I think, two years ago in October, which uh, Cohen sponsored. Uh, it was for Native American and Pacific Islander with breast cancer, and the um, the conversation was incredibly disturbing. These are cultures that uh, don't even acknowledge disease, yeah. or if you do, you're cursed by spirits, or right. you get uh, almost like um, uh, excommunicated from your tribe. And how do you even govern those opportunities culturally? And, and it's just a fascinating insight into the challenges we continue to have. Right, absolutely. The mm-hmm. I mean, have their own disparity groups. You can go down any Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole you want. Absolutely. Well, we have a few minutes left. I can't let you guys go on stage uh, without talking about Pinktober, Pink Nausea, fracture um, <laughs> breast cancer, all these fabulous pink porta potty things we have here. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on pink washing in this whole month, and has it been completely co-opted to the point? Because you guys do pink very class, classfully. I don't know. I'm making a point here. <laughs> well, I have metastatic breast cancer, so I love the pink, but there's also the voice of those who are not over-treatment. Right. And that's there has been more attraction as far as people talking about metastatic breast cancer and giving voice to those of us who are dealing with this disease on an ongoing basis. So I love the pink, but I also am screaming too, like, hey, what about us? <laughs> exactly. So. So even though pink means breast cancer, like I said at the top of the show, there's 25,000 different versions of breast cancer, and metastatic is a whole other universe. Right. Uh-huh. Meta, your thoughts on uh, pink nausea? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah, it's really it's really tough this time this this month. This month is tough for a lot of young women that have um, been affected by breast cancer. And you know, to me, it's really important to educate yourself, not just young survivors, anyone who is spending money the month of October and that money might be going to something that has a you know a pink color attached to it, to understand where that money is going. I mean, it has just become this monster, you know, where, um, you know, you really want to be careful. I mean, there's, there's some really great organizations out there. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. And, um, you know, the other part of it, yeah, it's just not pretty to me, breast cancer, and i'm i'm really turned off by the sexualization or you know anything along those lines and um you know i don't see that so much with some of the other cancers and you know when you know when you're talking about a woman's breasts it's um difficult for me to um to go that route when it's when it's really commercialized or sexualized. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I one of the reasons I got involved with YSC is, is because I, I, I really really um, responded to how they treated treated pink and um, like you said, classy, classy. <laughs> I say, I say so. classfully. Classfully, <laughs> I like that. I <laughs> correct on the show yeah. here. Being educated, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Gene, three and a half, I didn't realize you had started like right when Jen did. That's quite amazing. You have truly created a significant culture shift in the brand. I remember <laughs> I first met YSC. I was involved with the Jersey chapter back in 2001. Um, mm-hmm. And I had just people. I wasn't even an advocate back then. I was just in the job and I was happy to not be dead, you know. But I was like, oh, right. I can do this. I wasn't, it was a non denominational cancer person. I didn't go to the brain cancer people and then these people. You know, and stupid cancer is non-denomination. Right. But you know, what what would you say are the biggest uh, you know successes and challenges now facing YSC? Well, <clears throat> that question earlier about how do we reach rural communities? You know, Mega gave a great answer about how we do reach people. But you know, I'm I'm constantly thinking about okay, not everybody has a computer. How far mm-hmm. away is the library? Mm-hmm so they could get to use a computer. Um, The Pew Foundation research shows that most young adults have phones, but they don't necessarily have the Internet on their phone. So keeping current with our demographic is of paramount importance. And we were talking about this um, the other day that, you know, it used to be that you could go to a support group, or you might be able to call in to a telephone support group. And some those things still exist, but there's so many different ways for the people that have the ability to access them to connect. But for people who don't, you know, I think it's going to take um, some rolling up our sleeves and really finding organizations that we can partner with to find out how do we get into uh, not just putting a flyer in a doctor's office or in the library, but how do we actually reach the young women who don't even know we exist? Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Well, the organization is Young Survival Coalition on the web at youngsurvival.org. They tweet at YSC Buzz. And, again, like the the quadrifecta, right, the, the four feet. <laughs> we'll have you back at five feet next year. Really love you guys. <laughs> You're one of the key players oh. in the United States. We work really well together. 
And uh, we can make fun of Jenna Cordelli for not coming on the show. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that we got to town. So thank yes. you so much for it's, letting oh, us a, step in and, and be oh. the second They're tier. Sharing the They're sharing the wealth. It's time for, an, right. for, for, for uh, a new class of amazing people. from the Absolutely. We love you, Matthew. Yes. We love Stupid Cancer. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. Thank you. So Gene Rowe is the Associate so Director of Scholarship Programs, uh, Kadisha Carter, a uh, 11-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and advocate for young survival collusion, and Meta Sutliff is there, a uh, two-time young adult breast cancer survivor and a Northeast Regional Field Manager, YoungSurvival.org. The Young Survival Coalition, folks, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Did you see the pink? Fracking thing? The the pink fracking. Did you see it? There was a drill bit for fracking that was pink. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I forgot to mention on the air, but like, well, I mean, we're still on the air technically, but there was a pink drill bit for the cure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little nauseous. That's okay. Have you ever bought anything pink and and it didn't wind up going where you wanted it to go? More than likely. Yeah. Yeah. We, there's a great organization you should know about called Breast Cancer Action. They are the Heard of them before. the greatest pink washing watchdog mm-hmm. nonprofit in the world. They monitor a billion dollar corporations and all the crap they put out there to really? pretend that it's helping you. And I think their greatest coup in in my history of nonprofit. This will be like my where I aspire to make change. YoPlay had bovine growth hormone in their uh-huh. yogurts, but yes. were doing pink lids, which. There were two problems with A, BGH is a trigger for potential breast cancer, which is stupid when you're raising money for breast cancer. Right. But two, the lids, you had to mail the lids in for them to give a dime to Coleman. So you had to spend 44 cents. <laughs> you could collect like 100 lids, that's fine, but who collected 100 lids, right? And you mailed the lid. You couldn't like take a picture of it and Instagram it. No, you had to mail the lid, spend 44 cents on posted an envelope. Oh, my gosh. And then give a dime to Coleman. Anyway. Breast Cancer Action, they called them out on their bullshit. They stopped it. They got the BGH out of the yogurt and, like, total victory. That was, that's awesome. Total win. Yeah. Really cool stuff. And I had to get that out of my system. (laughs) Thank you for getting that. And thankfully, October and all day. And now it's time for Movember. I know. (laughs) It's time for Movember. By the way, uh, Thomas Cantley. That's one of yes. my friends. Oh, you know T.C.? Yeah, yeah, T.C. I'm Baldy. Helping I'm helping him. Oh, yeah, yeah dragging yeah. this giant lump across yes, the country. Yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> Wait, oh, hello. that man who's dragging a testicle across the country? That's yeah. him. That's Tom. He's going to set Tom. a pop-up tent, screening tents in yeah. New York City. Yeah. He's that's a man. such an interesting concept. I have so much to say about that <laughs> for another show. <laughs> but by all means, it, it certainly raises awareness. Yes, yes it, it does. does. It's it's and he's very active, so just watch yourself. He'll roll right into our office someday. Good stuff. Yeah. All right, well, folks, that's our show. Here is our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 325th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Talking is sick. That's stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Vanessa Lavin, Jean Rowe, Meta Sutliff, Kadisha Carter, and drop-in guest, special guest, Ginger Smith. 
Next week's show, stupid transplants, bone marrow, stem cell, and blood transplants. Oh, my. Join us for an exclusive broadcast where we discuss all things transplant with Susan K. Stewart, the executive director of BMTInfoNet.org, Dr. Amir Steinberg, and survivor Sarah Patterson. Survivor Spotlight on young adult testicular cancer survivor Thomas Cantley. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Sean Shapiro, Kenny King, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and a whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Tours, so...